You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. First, I have a few housekeeping items. Everyone is on mute. If you'd like to ask a question, feel free to do so throughout the presentation and just use the questions pane in your webinar toolbar, and I will check that periodically throughout the discussion today. And then, as always, the recording and a copy of the slides will be sent in the post-webinar email that's generally going to be sent tomorrow, Friday, or on Monday. So yes, a copy of the slides and a recording will be sent to everyone in the post-webinar email. Having said that, I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton. I work with employers on a daily basis who want to be compliant. I can have these practical discussions with employers I'm not giving legal advice, so I want to throw in that disclaimer, as always. I'm not an attorney and uh, not giving any type of legal advice today. The information always comes in, it seems rapidly at times, or we'll have a spurt of information. And so anything we talk about today is always going to be subject to further clarification. If the IRS and the DOL work to give us more guidance on certain items, then we may see clarifications come out. The objective of today is to have a conversation that helps you along the way. I know that HR leaders, business owners, everyone else working in benefits, we all want validation on what we're reading right now, that second set of eyes, if you will, and potentially guidance where there may seem to be none. So the hope is that this weekly conversation, excuse me, this monthly conversation provides a little bit of that validation and guidance for you. Please don't forget that you can listen to all past episodes of Kamayo's Compliance Talk starting, I believe, back in April of last year. There are 16 of them. You can download Kamayo's Compliance Talk from Apple Podcasts and listen at your leisure. All right, I'm doing it a little bit differently today. I'm starting off with the toilet paper talk. And so toilet paper talk is this segment where I want you all to know what's out there. What are other employers talking about? What are the relevant issues from last week? Although maybe I should rename toilet paper talk to, you know, gasoline uh, talk because now the big the big uh, item or to have is gas, whereas you know a year ago it was toilet paper. We're going to talk about masks today and the CDC guidance that came out, as well as Fed OSHA and Cal OSHA, and how that interplays or how they interplay with each other. I do want to say here, I am not the expert on <clears throat> this type of. Uh, topic on, you know, whether or not your employees still need to wear masks. That's an employment arena, so employment law. Normally, I like to have Nicole Cam on the show. She's an, an employment attorney from Fisher Phillips. She couldn't join us today, but she's going to be on next month's episode, which is June 20th. 
So, or June 24th, excuse me. So make sure you attend that one because it, it, I think it'll be super relevant since the economy, the California state is fully opening up June 15th from what Newsom has said. So to have Nicole on the line with us next month will be a great thing. So please join us so you can ask your questions there. I want to talk about the COBRA subsidies and the new IRS guidance that we just got and a little bit about the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association settlement. This is something that we are all receiving our postcards in the mail as individuals. I actually got mine via email because when I first signed up as an Anthem member, I just used my personal email. So they sent me an email and employers are starting to receive their postcards notifying them that they have a right to file a claim and it gives instructions on where to go and file that claim. So I'm just going to talk about that a little bit here because we've gotten lots and lots of questions, you know, questions from employers saying, is it worth it to file a claim? If my employee files a claim, what does that mean for me? What if I paid a hundred percent or what if my company paid a hundred percent? Does that mean that they shouldn't file a claim as an employee? So let me kind of answer a few of those questions that you may have had recently. And the first is I would say, yes, it's absolutely worth it to file a claim. Uh, it, it's better to file one instead of not filing one for sure, because there's a chance that you, you as an individual could get money back and then your employer could also or will also get money back as well. Now, filing a claim is fairly easy as long as you choose the default option. So I myself filed a claim. I just went online as myself, as an individual. And a lot of the information I didn't remember. For example, what years was I on an Anthem plan and a Blue Shield plan? I'm not sure, but I know that I have been enrolled intermittently with both carriers. So I just wrote what I knew. And if I didn't know it, it, it said, okay, just write down what you, who were your employers. Well, I wrote that down and then I chose a default option and I even gave them my Venmo because they said they would send me uh, the claims money via Venmo or a check in the mail. And I was all over Venmo. So I'm excited to see uh, what's going to happen, you know, in the next uh, several months if, they, if they're going to actually Venmo that money. That'll be interesting. That was me as an individual. If an employer is going on to file a claim, it's a little bit different. Uh, it might be a little bit more in-depth, but there are but there are optional boxes um, that you can choose. And uh, as an employer, so you don't have to fill out the entire claims form online and you will still get your money. I, uh, I had a question. Someone asked if I was talking and the answer is yes. So I wanted to ensure that you were all listening to me and, and that I didn't have any audio issues. So if someone could go into the questions pane and just confirm that, yes, you can hear me. Could I have someone do that for me? Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. So it sounds like one or two of the audience might be having some audio issues, but, but not on my end. So that is good. Thanks so much. All right. If you have specific questions about the BCBSA lawsuit, feel free to let me know. 
I, I know quite a bit about it, but there's information that we just will never know. You know, their lawsuit is really about a group of plaintiffs who, plaintiffs who felt as if all the internal blues associations had internal agreements that stifle competition. The blues did not lose the lawsuit. They agreed to settle. And so whether or not they had unfair practices and whether or not it cost anyone uh, money as far as driving down or driving up the rates, that, that is something we, we will never know. Um, the Blues just decided to, to settle the lawsuit, and, and that's that. And when I say the Blues, this lawsuit is Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. So that includes Anthem. That includes Blue Shield. That includes any type of regional Blue Cross Blue Shield plans across the nation. I know Michigan has a regional Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. Tennessee has their own Blue Cross Blue Shield plan. So any plan, any carrier that is a part of the Blues Association. And here in California, that would be Blue Shield and Anthem. Those are the two key Blues in the state of California. Outside of California, it becomes more regional. And then the other item that's come up quite a bit in the past couple of weeks are the FSA changes. So a lot of employers decided to adopt the, either the unlimited carryover or the 12 month grace period, as well as the FSA mid-year election changes without a qualifying event. There was that flexibility. And the TPAs are just now getting caught up and providing amended documents based on what the employers are telling them that they, they are choosing to adopt. So this past couple of weeks, I have been reviewing quite a bit of updated plan documents from IGO, from Discovery, from Health Equity. So I know that that's in progress. I know a lot of employers are working to get that paperwork out. Just remember that if you adopted these changes, any of the changes that the, the CAA 2021 allowed for or other notices allowed for, which typically that's going to be unlimited carryover or the 12-month grace period, just know that, one, you want to notify your employees. That's an important piece of this is you need to let your employees know what changes you've made to the plan. In this case, either change, unlimited carryover or 12-month grace period would certainly be welcome news. And then the second part is to ensure that you update your plan documents and you let your TPA, your FSA TPA, know what you're doing because they're the ones who need to administer it behind the scenes. Does it look like I have any questions on that? Everyone can still hear me. I appreciate your your comments. And so let's move on to the recent CDC guidance. I know you all may have a lot of questions on this, and frankly, I still have a couple. What I did is I consulted with Nicole Cam earlier this week, and I asked her to give me her thoughts because she couldn't attend today's webinar. So as I mentioned, Nicole Cam's an employment attorney, and that's exactly where this falls when it relates to whether or not your employees have to wear a mask. I want to share some information with you, even though I'm not the expert, but this is some food for thought and maybe we'll get you going and you'll know what direction to go in as you start to think about your next steps. First, we have the CDC announcement 
on May 13th. Wow, that was a that was a really big announcement. A lot of buzz around that, and everyone immediately thought, "Okay, I can go." It seems as if a lot of people immediately thought that, "Oh, okay, well, I can go without a mask now." The CDC said, "CDC says so." First, let me say, the CDC does not set regulatory um, laws. They don't set any laws. They provide guidance, but then the regulatory agencies then will either adhere to their guidance or they will modify it or they will do nothing. So the CDC did not change any laws. But several prominent stores, retail chains, came out in the news and said, oh, guess what? You no longer have to wear a mask when you're shopping with us. And I know that this this is such uh, it's such a great step to hear. So this weekend, uh, I was talking to one of my friends, and she said she was at Trader Joe's, and and it was here in California. And she saw a patron stand at the door and ask the cashier if she could come in without her mask. And the cashier didn't even know. The cashier was like, I I mean I don't know. I have to go ask the manager. So they went to the manager and the manager let the patron come in and uh, shop without mask. Now, you may be saying, wait, some of you may be saying, wait, that doesn't sound right. And others may be saying, okay, well, yeah, that's right. The CDC said you don't need to wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated. But what Trader Joe's and Starbucks as well has done this as well. What the fine print is, the part that we don't really hear afterwards, is that if there are any applicable local or state laws, you have to adhere to those. You still have to adhere to those. So for Trader Joe's and for Starbucks, the statement is you can shop mask-free if you're fully vaccinated if there are no applicable state or local laws that you must follow. Here in California, the governor made an announcement indicating that fully vaccinated individuals can stop wearing masks on June 15th as long as we continue our current patterns, which are very positive here in California. We have one of the lowest rates in the nation for COVID positivity rate. So there is still a mask mandate in the state of California. Um, so, uh, so we should say that that is going to trump any CDC guidance. Well, now let's look at a regulatory body. The, another regulatory body is Fed OSHA. They made an announcement on 517 that essentially gave the green light to follow CDC guidance. Okay, so that's awesome. That's great. What does it mean in California? Okay, California has to follow Cal OSHA. California employers follow Cal OSHA here. Cal OSHA has um, just, they are expected to adopt significant revisions to their ETS. It's going to be voted on, uh, oh, today. It's being voted on today. So we may know by the time we're off this call, it looks like they're going to adopt significant revisions. Please, please visit those revisions. They are uh, different. I, I, I briefly dove into it last night. There are things that you need to know in there, and I'll give you some resources for that. But besides Cal OSHA, as an employer, just ensure that you're considering any local ordinances that your organiza- organization may need to follow. 
for example, is there a county ordinance? Is there a city ordinance? Any type of local ordinance? It can be so confusing because, you know, the CDC says one thing, and we all think we're, we're free to, to follow that, but we've got federal government below that who's a regulatory body. We've got the state of California. We've got, um, and then we've got the cities and the counties that they have their own ordinances. So I, I really caution you before you start to remove masks in the workplace to consult an employment attorney. That is going to that will be money well spent, in my opinion. So essentially, uh, Fisher Phillips sent out an alert that talks about the three options one an employer could consider after the state and the local orders lift the mask mandate for fully vaccinated individuals. And that's coming soon, there's no doubt. We've heard that from Governor Newsom and from Cal OSHA. There are three options to consider after the mask mandate's lifted for fully vaccinated individuals. One, you can have everyone keep their mask on. You can choose to do that as the employer and that presents the lowest risk. Here at Bolton and Company, I work in compliance. I lead the compliance department. So if you were to ask me what I thought you should do, I'm going to say have everyone keep their masks on because my job is to mitigate or eliminate risk. I always go towards the lowest risk option. Although your company could be less risk adverse, and so maybe the second option, you could require employees to show their vaccine card or keep their masks on. Doing so has some cons. It increases the risk of liability because now you need to follow privacy laws with regards to the vaccine card. And you also need to ensure that you're following privacy laws with respect to your employees. If you ask someone to wear a different colored badge, if they're vaccinated versus um, unvaccinated, what does that mean? Is that completely legal? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure because now that sort of practice essentially tell it tells me now I know who's vaccinated and who's not, and that opens up a can of worms on not only privacy laws, but you could open yourself up for a discrimination suit, even though that wasn't your intent, certainly. But since everyone now knows who's vaccinated or not in this scenario. You just open up a host of, uh, of uh, risk. <laughs> Let me just say that. You open up risk. And, um, you know, when you ask for proof, that inevitably is going to lead to requests for accommodation for those unable or unwilling to get vaccinated for religious reasons or medical reasons. So just be aware that it's not as simple as we want it to be. And that... Uh, truly money well spent to consult an employment expert, come up with a sound plan that both you and your employment expert agree on and can, can live with as far as whatever risk may be present. The third option. So we kind of mentioned there's three options. Fisher Phillips put together this, uh, this nice alert and I'm paraphrasing right here and they've given three options that you could consider. The last one is, to follow the honor system. And to do this, you would just want to consider how this might create risk uh, that an employer is cited for failure to maintain a safe workplace. So if you're just following the honor system, 
how is Cal OSHA going to look at that? Are they going to think, wow, well, you didn't do enough to ensure that you were maintaining a safe workplace? I mean, that's just a question that's out there. There's no answer at this moment. And so at the, at the bottom here, you see, and I'm sort of being facetious, and but it's really because I, I want to laugh instead of just cry with frustration. It, is it too much to hope that Cal OSHA will provide guidance to employers to assist with these potential issues that create liability and create risk? I don't know. Is it? I, I'm really hoping they come out with something to help employers. So that is some food for thought for you. The next slide is really where I give you some resources where you can go looking. It, you all know I love Fisher Phillips. You know that Nicole Cam is an employment attorney at Fisher Phillips. Nicole is a um, repeat guest speaker here on the podcast. She's so fantastic to be helping us and our employers. And she'll be on the June podcast and webinar. But for now, I wanted to point you to some resources that Fisher Phillips has. First is a COVID-19 litigation tracker. I thought that was really, really interesting. And you will not be surprised to know that California currently leads the uh, COVID-19 litigation competition, if you will, meaning that California has the most lawsuits out there related to COVID-19. The litigation tracker on their website is really interesting and gives you an idea of what risk you might be absorbing by by implementing certain policies. Fisher Phillips also has an article with a seven-step plan to overcome risk and hurdles with regards to the mask mandate. Most recently, they issued an alert on the Cal OSHA ETS revisions. Now, that's being voted on today. It is fully expected to be adopted. So even though it may not be law as of this moment, we expect that it will be very soon. And it's probably a good idea to look at those top 10 revisions that the, the Cal OSHA is making. They are significant, very interesting. And it's going to mean that you'll need to take action as an employer. You'll need to know what, what, you're, what you're going to do with regards to math. And then you'll need to communicate that to your employees and it seems like you've got a few weeks to, to get that plan together. And lastly, I would love for everyone to attend the Fisher Phillips webinar that's coming up on 524. It's the top employer takeaways for upcoming Cal OSHA ETS. Fisher Phillips is putting that on. I have the invite here. So when you get a copy of the PowerPoint after, the, the, the discussion today, you can click on this or you can simply go to Fisher Phillips and go to their events tab and register for the webinar there. A lot of new information out there with regards to these maps. And I, my goal is to always give you information so you know what other employers are doing out there across California, across the nation, because I know it's helpful. So I found this, uh, we have a partner, a partnership with a national association and they conducted a national study on whether employers will be requiring proof of the vac of the COVID-19 vaccination in order to have the employees return to the work site. So what you're looking at is the results of that survey. 
the red bar is the results as of February, and the yellow bar are the newest results as of the end of April. We've got 75% of employers saying we will not require proof of vaccines in the workplace. Now, mind you, this was before the Cal OSHA EPS and the CDC guidance and the, you know, the mask mandate potentially being lifted in California on June 15th. But you can see most employers are not really willing to require proof. They don't, they don't want to go there. There's too much risk. But we still have some that are, that are undecided. Moving on to the American Rescue Plan Act, the COBRA subsidies. The deadline is so fast approaching. I hope you have all been in contact with your COBRA TPAs and you have met their internal deadlines because if you wanted their assistance, they were asking for their employers to meet certain deadlines. I know Discovery had a deadline, I believe, of May 7th, so theirs is long gone. If you do not have a COBRA TPA and you plan on sending out the notices yourself, then that deadline is fast approaching. Your notices should be out in the mail already. If they're not, you should be mailing them out, of course, postmarked by 531. It's uh, the notice to current COBRA participants describing the availability of the subsidies, the new special notice to individuals who were previously involuntary termed or lost coverage. And then uh, you'll need to ensure that you send a subsidy ending notice when appropriate as well. It's, it's a little bit of old news, but we just got guidance from the IRS. I mean, I believe this was two days ago that we that the, the IRS released notice 2021-31 to clarify a lot of areas in the COBRA subsidy provisions of the ARPA. And, it, you know, it's frustrating because this is clarity we needed prior to the deadlines that the TPAs imposed because they needed to, time to get these notices out. But unfortunately, no, we didn't get our wish. We're getting the, the guidance at the very last minute. And so I wanted you to see that this notice is out there. It provides a lot of clarification on involuntary terminations, on substantiation of the premium assistance eligibility, on subsidy eligibility issues, on state continuation issues. That's relevant only to groups that are subject to CalCobra only. So groups under 20 are subject only to CalCobra. They're not subject to federal COBRA. Cause, so that's who I'm talking to right now are the smaller employers under 20. Or if you're uh, not, if you're subject to CalCobra only. So the IRS stated that the second chance enrollment is not required for individuals that are eligible only for state-based continuation coverage like CalCobra. However, it's permitted if the carrier allows it, and you only need to offer it to currently covered individuals or those who become eligible between April and the end of September. Now the question remains, who's responsible for sending the notices? If you're a smaller employer, please check with your carrier. The carrier is uh, interpreting the language of the subsidies and they act um, separate from, from what we may interpret it. So it's always important to understand what is your carrier doing? Are they sending out the notices or do you as the employer need to, to do that? 
since there's not any guidance from the IRS on these notices on who's responsible for sending them, if they're if you're a smaller group, then it's really going to be up to you and the carrier to decide who's going to do it. But someone needs to do it. So the state continuation issues, it, for sure, that's issues. It's, a lot of coordination needs to happen between the smaller employers and the carriers to understand the logistics of these notices. It is clear that the carrier is responsible for subsidizing the premium. That is clear. The carrier must subsidize the premium for groups that are subject to CalCOBRA only, for smaller groups only. And then the IRS released guidance on claiming the tax credits as well. We're not going to go over all of it today. There are quite a few Q&As to review. You can check out the IRS Notice 2021-31 and review all the Q&As. Here's one that I know that our employers are asking about, even still, is what's an involuntary termination? That's been clarified in the new IRS notice that they just released. They're telling us what an involuntary termination is. They're using the same definition that they did under our era in 2009, ARRA 2009. If you were working in benefits back then, you'll remember that. There's a question. Um, Q&A 24 on the IRS notice addresses this specifically, and they give examples of involuntary terminations which would make someone in AEI or, or COBRA um, subsidy eligible. So a termination designated as a voluntary quit or a resignation where the employee was willing and able to continue performing services so that absent the voluntary termination, the employer would have terminated the employee anyway. So that, that gets into a lot of employment, the employment arena, but you can kind of see the intent there is if someone, you, you offered someone the option to voluntarily resign instead of having, you know, maybe a termination on their, some, a firing offense on their record, that is going to be a COBRA subsidy individual as outlined in Q&A 24 of that notice. Here's one I get asked about a lot. Employer action to end a person's employment while the person is out on leave due to illness or disability. If before the action there is a reasonable expectation that the employee will return to work. I get a lot of questions um, some that, that go something like this. Our employee is on leave. They've been on leave for six months. We're going to have to terminate their benefits. Um, can, are they going to be eligible for the subsidy? If you believe that there, if there's a reasonable expectation that this person will return to work, then when you terminate their benefits while they're on leave, they are a COPRA subsidy individual. And that's addressing Q&A 25 of the IRS notice. And there's one that gets a little complicated regarding contracts, employment contracts. It's Q&A 34. You can see here at the bottom, an employer's decision not to renew an employee's contract. If the employee was otherwise willing and able to continue the relationship and was willing to con execute the terms of the contract, similar to what expired, then that's a COBRA subsidy individual. So that's an AEI. But there's an exception. However, 
when someone was hired, if both parties understood at the time that they entered into the contract and at all times when services were being performed, that the contract was for certain services only over a set term and would not be renewed. The completion of that contract uh, without it being renewed is not an involuntary termination. So that would not be a COBRA subsidy individual. There's a lot of language there, a lot of specific language. I would say for those who are in a situation where you have specific employment contracts that are short term and someone is losing their benefits because it's the end of that contract, run this by an employment expert. Ask them whether or not this would be an AEI, an assistance eligible individual. Because you can see it's very, the language is very specific on when uh, it's considered an involuntary termination. So you would have to meet certain standards. And that's why I would say discuss that with an employment attorney or an employment expert to make sure that you are meeting those standards if you consider them to not be an AEI. I have a question, so I'm, a few questions, so I'll, I'll stop right here for a second. Yes. You will receive a copy of the PowerPoint and a link to the recording in the post-webinar email, as always. But a question, what about employees who choose to voluntarily separate, uh, were offered a separation incentive program eligible for subsidy? Oh, that is a great scenario here. They chose to voluntarily separate, but they were offered a separation incentive. So is that why they chose to voluntarily resign? Hmm, so let's go back to the first. The first bullet point here states, a termination designated as voluntary, which is what you're looking at right now, it posed in your question, where the employee was willing and able to continue performing services. So that absent the voluntary termination, the employer would have terminated the employee's services. If you ask yourself these questions and you do not know the answer, you're operating in a gray area. There's not any clear guidance on the situation that you just posed to me, where an employee cho chose chose to voluntarily separate, but they were essentially offered an incentive for that separation. That's not addressed in the regulations. So I would go back to say, would that employee have been willing to continue performing services? Let's say the answer is yes, okay. Uh, absence, the voluntary termination, would you as the employer have terminated the employee services? That's the other question you would need to answer there. And that's the, that's the unknown there. Great scenario, though. I'm sure that other employers are going to be faced with that type of scenario, and they're going to wonder, okay, is that person eligible for subsidy? If you can't figure it out on your own, looking at Q&A 24, it's going to be well worth the money to consult an employment expert. If you, have, if you are a Bolton client, you have access to Think HR, and Think HR uh, could be that employment expert for you. So check out Think HR before you move on to paying an employment attorney. Okay, well that's about it for our discussion today. I know that was a lot of new information and um, hopefully you've got all your COBRA subsidy paperwork taken care of, the notices are being sent out. I really encourage you to go to fisherphillips.com, register for that event on May 24th where they are going to discuss 
the Cal OSHA ETS revisions in detail. That is a big, big topic where there are going to be a lot of questions. Other resources for you, you can see here the Bolton blog. Don't forget to subscribe there so you get our blog postings. If you have benefit-related questions, feel free to contact your Bolton uh, account client management team if you're a benefits client of Bolton. And of course, I mentioned Bolton clients have access to ThinkHR. ThinkHR has a great COVID-19 center, but also their HR experts are, are standing by for your phone call. So if you do have questions around the involuntary in term, the involuntary terminations, you can pick up the phone, call ThinkHR's hotline, and maybe that's a, a, a less expensive resource, um, or I should say that's a free resource as opposed to going to your employment attorney first. You all know I like Fisher Phillips a lot, and Nicole Cam will be here next month in June. Uh, the next webinar is June 24th. She'll be here. She'll be able to answer questions and we'll have a lot of more, a lot more information as well because it'll be after that June 15th uh, date for reopening the state. Uh, someone asked for the place to check the new clarification on involuntary terms. Absolutely. I'm going to put this back on the screen. It's IRS Notice 2021-31. Here is the link. You will get a copy of the slide, so you can click on the link when you get a copy of that slide, or you can simply Google IRS Notice 2021-31. Make sure you find the ones for this year, because you'll find there will be a few of them, but they won't be related to this topic. Click on that, and then you'll see a Q&A in that notice, and it is Q&A 24 down to 34 that addresses and voluntary termination. You will get a copy of these slides. So you'll have all that information at your fingertips. And you can see on this slide, you can see where I put the number, the Q&A, and then the number of the, the question, which corresponds to the IRS notice. So hopefully it'll be easier glancing through that and diving into the one that's specific to your organization. All right, thanks for joining me today, everyone. I appreciate it, and I'll see you next month.